and here we go. Hello everybody, I'm Isaiah. Today is the very, very first episode of Talking Musicology. Today I have a really, really special guest with me today. Um, I'm honored, I'm humbled to be in his presence. This cat that's with me has played with numerous folks. Best known to play with Weather Report, his name is Bobby Thomas Jr. Pleasure, pleasure. So the first thing I want to get into is that you've you've been known to be the oldest in your family. Yes, the oldest of seven kids. Oldest of seven. And it's also known that you've been really the one that's carried the load. You had these jobs, you've really had these responsibilities early on. True. So how how did music come into that? I think it was um, as a young boy coming home from school, I would come in the house through the back door and my mother would be in there doing housework, but she would always be listening to American Bandstand. Mm, okay. And and I would hear her singing and, and uh, you know, dancing around the house and all this this cool music. I thought, man, this is this is nice, you know, this is mm. cool. You know, my mom was sixteen when she had me, so she was like a teenager. And it was like the fun house because, you know, other teenagers got home from school, they would hear the music, they were stopped by my house. It was like the party house when I was little. And so that's when music played a large part in, in my life. Mm. And also uh, going to church, going to church, you know, and I would see people singing in the choir. Back then when I was real little, I didn't like really understand it, but I thought it was, it was interesting as a, little, a young child. I didn't understand some of the music, some of the songs made me uncomfortable, especially the sad church songs, <laughs> you know, but the upbeat stuff, I thought, okay, I like this. Mm. But uh, listening to all the Motown stuff back in the day, they put out the most hits, I think, back, back in the day, you know. So that, for me, it, I'd always made my mother happy seeing mm -hmm. her singing and listening to American Bandstand. So when exactly did you know that, okay, this is my purpose, this is my calling, I should go forward with this? I think it was... After my grandfather died, I was around six years old. He was a piano player. Mm. And and uh, after he passed, for some strange reason, man, I, I would dream about these melodies almost every other night. And I, I would wake up and I would sing the melodies and I would write down poetry, which would turn into the lyrics. And as I got a little older, Bernard Rogers came into my life and that changed everything because I am not a piano player, but Bernard, you know, we would sneak in the house when, when his dad wasn't around <laughs> and he would play the organ. Yeah. And he would put chord changes to the melodies mm. that I, I, I guess my grandfather was bringing me these melodies because I'm, I'm not a, I was not a songwriter. Uh, but uh, I, I don't know, it was something about uh, having a friend like Bernard who didn't think I was crazy he believed in me. He didn't ask any questions. He would just sit down. I'd start singing my lyrics, and next thing I knew, I would hear these beautiful chords behind it. And that's how I got into it. Now, at the same time, I was an illustrator because mm. I had an older cousin taught me how to draw. So it was a toss-up between uh, drawing and painting and the music. But for me, it was out of the love I had for my grandfather because we were real tight. I was about six when he died, but... He was the kind of grandfather. Everywhere he went, I was with him. Mm, yeah. you, you know, I remember him like yesterday, man. I think I was 11 months old. He had a, a ragtop pink Cadillac. <laughs> you know, he carried his little silver-plated pearl-handled uh, pistol in his pocket down mm. in Goose, Florida back in the day. I guess, you know, African-Americans, you, you, you had to be strong. You had to be tough back in the day for what they had to deal with. Yeah. But he was, a, he was a, 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 a real tough guy, but he loved me, you know. And so I think it was my grandfather bringing me all his music, and Bernard Rogers brought it to life. And that's when I took the singing mm. serious. And, uh, but the, like, 
playing drums, that came later by accident with yeah. the, the Broomfield family. Yeah. Because you started out just beating on desk and... Yeah, at uh, Fulford Elementary School. Yeah. Just beating on the desk, you know. And we had free time from uh, one teacher after we finished our work. He'd let us sing and we would drum. And the only drums we had back then was on the, on the desk, remember? And I got into that. And then uh, later on, the Broomfield family moved to Washington Park from Georgia. And Bernard and I, we met them and we became friends. And uh, I became drum roadie for Alfred Broomfield. And um, this one night we had a gig and Carl Gables for this doctor. And I had finished unloading the van and I was sitting around this guy's big, beautiful house. And he said to Ben Broomfield, the oldest, the leader of the band, I don't want that kid sitting around my house. And I heard him say that. And of course I felt bad and I thought, well, okay, what am I going to do? And uh, Alfred came back, came over and said, Rob, go in the truck and get the bongos and just fake it, man, just to shut this guy up. So I was 13 then. Mm -hmm. The only thing I knew how to use my hands for was karate because I was studying uh, karate at uh, Florida Memorial College with my cousin, who's a third degree black belt. So I picked up the bongos and all I did was look at Ben Broomfield's stroke on the guitar for the rhythm and I just did karate on the bongos. And Al Broomfield turned to me and looked at me and said, damn, man, you're in the band. Just like that. <laughs> just like that. And that changed my life because on the way home, Al Broomfield told me, look, man, you got to learn how to play the congos. I thought, what the hell is that? Congos? I didn't know anything about conga drums. The timbales. Oh, and you have to play trap drums and you have to sing background vocals at the same time. And you only have three months. So that put, that changed my life completely. So back then, uh, Santana had put out a new album, Santana Abraxas or something, Black Magic Woman. I only bought the album for the artwork on the cover. <laughs> but, but young and, and, and ignorant, I never read the jacket. So I, got a, I had three jobs. I bought all these drums and equipment, man. Every day after school, I would finish my homework. I would go in my room and stay in there put on the album and play everything, not realizing wow. Carlos Santana, uh, who, who now is a friend of mine, I met his whole band. We used to, right. he used to, we used to open for him with Joe Zolano. He had four other guys in the band playing all that stuff. But I learned how to do it all by myself, and that's why I, my, hands, my hand speed for martial arts made it easier for me, but I was so ignorant, unaware, I didn't really know what I was doing. Mm. But it turned me into this monster musician that, that people tend, they like to see, they like to watch, <laughs> but I'm using everything I learned from karate, uh, yeah. with striking cymbals and medals without hurting myself and the, the speed and, and the Broomfield family, I have to thank them for my timing because that was the funkiest band in Miami back in the day. And we came up with the, the KC and the, when the Surf Riders or whatever they were called, you know, KC back in the Sunshine day. Brand. Ocean Liners. Ocean Liners, yeah. The Ocean Liners. Yeah, Ocean they Liners. ended up working for KC and the Sunshine Band. They had, but back in the day, man, all these groups were incredibly funky. Mm -hmm. and so, so that's Bernard and I. We grew up in it back in the day when, if you didn't have any any time, you didn't work. Yeah. So how were you guys? And you can chime in on this as well. Like, how would you describe the earlier material that you guys were working on? It was, um, Bernard always put a groove to it, you, you know, always had a pulse, but, but the theme and the melodies were sort of mystical. <laughs> and, and Bernard never had any problem with that because he's got perfect pitch. He would hear what I was singing and he would create the chord structure. Next thing you know, we had a song, and then sometimes Bernard would play the popular songs of the day. He'd play for me. I'd sit there and play conga drums. You know, we would jam, just the two of us, no bass player, nothing. Bernard played everything. Wow. Yeah, I tell you, we, we had a good group, but just the two of us. Yeah. <laughs> so now you two, because I remember first connecting with you, and you said something that was very, like, 
amazing. I don't think he knew the power of it as well because you said that there's a music program that pretty much you guys are responsible for. That's right. So how how did that come about? Because uh, the music teacher Sam Harris would catch us every day. We back in the day, uh, NMB Senior High School was an experimental school right behind uh, 163rd Street. And they had music rooms, music labs, all these rooms with pianos, and nobody was in there. Nobody. So Bernard and I, we would go by, and Bernard said, hey, man, all you need is a conga drum, we could jam. So I would go get a conga drum, we would go in the room, same time every day, and we would jam. And Sam Harris would come, like, a couple hours later and kick us out. After about three, four months, three, four months, he looked at us and said, man, I'm tired of kicking you guys out every day. <laughs> if you get 20 friends, if you get 20 friends, I'll give you, I can get you two credits. We'll call it Music Lab One or something like that. And I, as I told you, I went to Jewish Temple when I was little, when Miami was segregated. So I grew up with Jewish kids. So I, I had a lot of Jewish friends and a lot of African-American friends. And I've told everybody about it. And when Sam Harris came back that following week, we had over 23, 25 people. 25 people. And that's how that class began with Bernard Rogers and Robert Thomas Jr. Wow. Wow. So what was those jam sessions like? Because it went from just you two to this big collection of musicians. So what, what was those worlds of people coming together like, those sessions? It, it was, it was a, a wonderful collaboration because we had musicians like Marvin Thompson, Ronnie Collier, Larry Collier, later became the Unit 3 band. I ended up joining their band. They would come in, all African Americans, then had my Jewish friends, then we had Latin friends mm. in the band. So everybody made a contribution to the sound and Sam Harris was smart. He would pick, you know, the latest hits of the day and we would learn all these cover songs. And, and but for some reason I had a real soft voice and he always uh, made me sing James Taylor songs. <laughs> you know, the brothers used to make fun of me but I didn't care, you know. <laughs> but but it, it was a great learning experience, man, because we would cover all different genres of music, not just R&B which growing up in Washington Park, when we went down by the, the little uh, store, you would hear the same music every day all the time. You know, and Bernard and I, man, we would, we would go out and buy albums, you know, from different bands, and we would sit in my bedroom, man, he would come to my house, and Bernard and I would sit, and we would just listen to all these different groups, and that was a great influence for us. It opened us up, instead of just only listening to R&B. To be honest with you, uh, I think the beginning of it started more for me with most of the Santana in yeah. Chicago and uh, Buddy Miles. And then it started to trickle over to the people like Traffic, you know, John Bartacombe must die, uh, actually Carol King, like you said, James Taylor. I bought these albums, I, I, I had like tons of albums of different artists. It's just, I, I just wasn't stuck on one. I think that's what kind of opened me up to music whereas I can see something from a universal standpoint because all of these musicians, they, they, they had their own style, especially James Taylor. I love James Taylor music. For some reason, I just I can fall asleep with it on the turntable. Just mm -hmm. listen. Back then, like I said, tapes and all that other stuff, it was all it was all wax. So a lot of the music, and, and to be honest with you, I never read a single type of music. I never read any music. But I can hear I think that God gifted me with the, the gift of the hearing, being able to hear different sounds. But I, I didn't, I didn't pursue it after I went up and came back. I didn't pursue it, but I still kept an instrument around, and put my hands on from time. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's very true. Very true. Yeah. Yeah. So it, that's that. That was a great uh, beginning for everybody. You had a. Uh, Alfred Broomfield's brother went on, had a couple hit songs. He came out of that music class. Yeah. I've I've been on Facebook. I get young kids that, that see me on Facebook and they know who I am. They know that I came from that school. 
And wow. I get hits from them saying, man, thank you. You've been a big influence in my life. And all that started from Bernard Roberts <laughs> and Robert Thomas Jr. Wow. All these decades later, that program is still going because of us. And now my book is almost finished. When that book comes out, the world will know the real truth of how that started. Because even the people that live in Washington Park today, they don't know the contribution your father made for that neighborhood because all the kids from that neighborhood go to that school and if they go to a music class it's thanks to your dad wow. but see they nobody knows that and so i'm in the i'm in the position to talk about it because this was my brother growing up yeah. we spent time we were together every day every day unless i had to work you know a lot of free time, you know. Like I said, we even if it wasn't free, we found time to make time. That's right. Um, and 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 there was never an answer like no, not now, you know, later. I was excited when I see him turn the corner because I knew we was gonna get into something, you know. <laughs> That's that right. living room piano, I never did really sit down to think about playing it. I was coming in after school and just kind of rub my fingers across the top of it. But that was one day. I began to sit down and play, just, just fiddling around. My hands would drip water. So I would tell my mother, I said, why is my hand and nothing else sweating like that? Just dripping water, my hands would drip water. Nothing from here up, nothing, no perspiration, just my hands. And she told me, she said, son, one day, she said, you're gonna be using your hands for something greater than just music. And I began to understand later on if she went on be with the creator she said something to me she didn't talk to me much she didn't call me in the room and prophesy over me and give me this long lecture about she said three things Bernard trust God and I'm like and it took me years later to realize what she was saying trust God is simply mean is have faith in him the things that you can't see because the scripture says you know hope of faith is a subtle thing hope for evidence of things not seen it's the same with music. It's just like you feel it. I remember the great Bruce Lee once say, you know, don't think, feel. And, and, and all of these little nuggets of, of education came together over the years. And it was much later that I realized that, wow, you know, I should have learned this stuff long, long before now. But that's a process. Everything is a process. You know, over a period of time, you get all these nuggets. And everything is not overnight. You know, it's just, it's just you get something now, you get something later. And then after maybe 25, 30 years of maturity, then you start seeing, like, well, okay, this is why I learned this then. This is why I'm learning it now. And, and I'm still learning. You see what I'm saying? We, we, we're always going to still be learning. As long as we can breathe breath, we're still going to be learning. I don't have the big head about wanting to think that I, I, I know so much. I'm still in the learning process. I just began to change areas of my faith because the things I began to understand, I talked to you about those things. And um, I said, I, I have to deprogram myself from, from these beliefs because I'm coming into a truth now. And some people, it take a longer time for them to detox. But I knew that it was a reason for me to get there. Remember I was telling you, one of the bishops used to always tell me, said, said, he's waiting on you. Waiting on me, you know. But now I understand what it means to get to a place to where as now I can feel comfortable. I don't have to fear, you know, anything now. I mean, the fear was there before, but now the fear is not there anymore. So I'm thankful for that. I'm really thankful for that. Well, that's beautiful. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know. Really yeah, it's a process, process, man. But um, I, I tell you, Bernard was a, a huge influence on me because I always wanted to, to be able to play the piano like he did. He would listen to something and just, he would learn it like that. Any, anything, anything, man. And I don't, I never understood how he could do that. He didn't read music, nothing. He would just listen. Okay, let me hear it again. Let me hear it again. Next thing you know, he's playing a song. And so that, that's how I came up. I think Ben, the Broomfields were the same way, just gifted. Yeah. All you guys are gifted, man. And, I tell you, Bernard and the Ben Broomfield, the oldest one, guitar player, this cat man, he he was the lead guitar player and the rhythm guitar player. 
he had a he had a stroke on that guitar. His timing was so deadly, man. And I owe that man uh, just as much as I owe Bernard for teaching me at 13 years old about time and how to hold it no matter what else is going on around you, how to focus. And I would lock in Ben Broomfield and Al Broomfield, also a great singer, piano player, but a lot of people don't realize Al Broomfield was the baddest drummer in Miami, one of the baddest drummers. Funky, could sing, play at the same time, just gifted. The whole family, D.D. Wiles, uh, you, you know, Vince Broomfield, Eugene Wilde, Ronnie Broomfield, you know, the whole family, incredible, man. I, I would go to the house, as soon as you come in, Mrs. Broomfield would insist that I sit down and try to play the piano. I'm so glad that she made me do that. Now I can play a little bit. When I teach at the Conservatory of Music in the Grove, I have the kids, I teach them a beat on the drums, I jump on the piano and I can play along with them. And as you know, what your father did for me, when you play with another person, it helps your timing. Yeah. And so that's the gift I got from uh, the Broomfield family and, and their mother, you, you know. So I owe a lot to the people I grew up with, you know, Bernard and the Broomfield family. And, and my mom, especially her, man, I think it was, she bought me my first pair of bongos, metal flake bongos from the little music store on the way to uh, 163rd Street. We'd walk by the, the music store. They sold albums back in the day, but they had bongos in the window. That's when I found out what they were really used for. <laughs> Instead of karate. <laughs> so, so I thank my mom, Emily, for that, man. And she was always singing around the house, so I became a singer. I was lead singer for Weather Report. I'm still singing now, mm. too, you know. And all that's from just my environment and going to church. Oak Grove Missionary Baptist Church. I started out as an usher boy. That job didn't last too long. I was young and skinny. And <laughs> the, the hefty women that would get the Holy Ghost and fall on the floor, man. I, was, ooh, I got tired of that. So I looked up at the choir and I thought, oh, all the pretty girls in the choir, I better get that job. <laughs> so, so, but it backfired on me, man. When they heard I could sing, they, I, I ended up in front, away from the, the, the girls. And that's why I joined the choir. <laughs> <laughs> But that also was a great learning experience yeah. because I was real shy growing up, you know, and that put that I was forced to get out front and sing. So that helped me a lot, man. Yeah. Yeah. So the next thing I wanted to ask is you went to Miami Dade College. Right. And that's actually when you discovered jazz. I sure did. I sure did, man. That was, it came right on time, too, because disco was the, the big thing back then and I, I was with the unit three band at the time and we did like maybe two or three gigs and that beat i'm sorry no uh, i'm trying to record this again sorry no problem yeah good okay so uh i did like three or four gigs with the unit three when disco was mm -hmm. the, the thing and that beat was so boring for me. I came home, I took my conga drum and put them in the attic. And my mother mm. said, Little Robert, what's wrong? I said, Mommy, I can't take that beat anymore. I said, What you mean, what beat? I said, That disco beat. I cannot do it. I'm done. I put my drums in the attic and I started going to uh, Miami Dade Junior College. And my my brother, I call him my, my, my brother, Eddie Barocas. Uh oh, it died. <sighs> Yeah, because that's the last one, too. <laughs> oh. So, well, we just got the audio going. So okay, it's, all right, it's okay. cool. Okay, so Eddie Barocas was a music promoter. He was, like, my age, 19, but he was producing jazz concerts. And and um, he said, Bobby, man, um, you still playing? I said, no, I quit playing. He says, why? I said, I can't stand disco. He said, why don't you listen to jazz? <clears throat> I, I listened to uh, uh, The Magic Bus. You know, I forget the number of the station. I started listening to that. And then he said, you know, there's a jazz club right on Biscayne Boulevard and, and uh, 79th Street, the Gold Dust Lounge. Why don't you go over there? So I stopped by the Gold Dust Lounge, man. I went in there. And and I remember I had just gotten dumped by a girl I was in love with, man. I 
I couldn't take here in top 40 music made, gave me the blues. So jazz was a mistake. <laughs> but I'm laughing at me. I know I've always been a hopeless romantic. So, uh, I step into the Gold Dust Lounge and I hear this pulse. I hear this. I think, man, what is that? So I went to the band and I said, hey, man, can I sit in? He goes, yeah, what do you play? Thank God, they had some bongos on the floor, right on the bandstand. Mm -hmm. I said, those over there. He goes, the bongos? said, yeah. So I went over and uh, started the song. I picked the bongos, started playing. He turned around, I swear to God, and Jet Nero became my musical father. He turned around, he looked at me, he said, boy, you ain't going to be here long. And I had no idea what he meant by that. No idea what he meant by that, man, but... And so he took me on his wing because uh, we talked after the gig. He lived out of North Miami Beach. He was a white dude from New York, but real cool. He lived in a black neighborhood. His wife was black. And he was a saxophone player. And he knew, uh, I mean, the history of jazz, all every standard, he knew it. You know, practice every day. We developed a relationship like I had with your dad. Mm. We would just play just percussion and saxophone, he played flute to every single day, man. And right next door to him was the drummer, Billy Peoples, and he was the um, drummer for Ray Charles. Mm. And when I fell in love with that pulse from the bebop and swing pulse, which was a refreshing after the disco thing, uh, Billy Peoples taught me how to swing, taught me how to play bebop, little jazz on trap drums. That got me hooked. Because that was, for me, you could just play whatever you felt from your heart. You didn't really have to be locked down to that disco thing, which still today I can't stand it. <laughs> you know, the young people, I've worked with a lot of young people, you know, and they said, oh, yeah, man, this is house music. I said, excuse me, young man, this is refried disco music. You know, so <laughs> you have to tell them the truth. They're, you know, they're young. They think they know everything. It's like, no, man, there's nothing new under the sun. This has been done way before you got here. Yeah. You know, so, so, uh, but Miami Dade also uh, was, didn't turn out too good for me, but I tried to get in the band, and Diego and Richie Obora had the drum seats and percussion seats in the, the jazz band. And my, my music, my art teacher, took me down to audition because he used to come see me at the airline motel. And he said, Bobby, man, they're having an audition for percussion for the jazz band. Why don't you come down? He took me down there. They refused to let me play because Richie Obora was in the playing percussion and his brother Diego Obora. Yeah, yeah, they didn't want to split them up so they wouldn't even listen to me. I was so heartbroken and disappointed and already I was unhappy because I went to Miami Dade for medical illustration. They didn't have medical illustration. It's a government job and my mom and I talked about it and said well if you get this job you know you get good benefits. It's a government job because art was still my first love. Mm -hmm. And man, I, after two years, I left Miami-Dade College. I was so upset. And around that time, it was another musician fell asleep, smoked, and burned himself up, and we had a benefit for him. And I ended up being the house conga player for Ira Sullivan, Billy Marcus, and Jaco Pastores, whom I did not know at all, but I had to play with these other people. And Jocko came in and saw me playing bebop on conga drums. And he walked right up to me and he said, Man, what are you doing? What are you doing to those conga drums? I've never seen anything like that. So I'm a bebop hand drummer. He said, I'm going to tell Joe Solomon about you. It meant nothing to me because I didn't know who that was. <laughs> I just come out of disco, right? And uh, then he said, Well, I'm going to tell Joe Zobino about what Joe Zobino from Weather Report about you went right over my head. I didn't know who that was <laughs> still. And man, a month later, I get a call from Jocko. Hey, this is Jocko. You want to audition for Weather Report? I said, yeah. Okay, what's your address? Give my address. They sent me a ticket, man, next couple of weeks. I'm on a plane. I went to New Haven, Connecticut. I think that's Harvard or Yale mm. University. They flew me straight to a gig with no rehearsal straight to a show and it was 
it was so weird, you know, because I thought, what kind of audition is this? Two tractor trailer trucks. Then I never seen anything like that. I'm coming from, you know, just playing in little clubs. And Jocko's looking at Joe Zawinul, you know, tough looking guy on a piano. And Wayne Shorter was very quiet, very humble. Peter Erskine, the drummer, he didn't seem too happy to see me show up. And uh, I think because the first thing I took out of my conga drums were my uh, cymbal stands. And he freaked out. He thought he had gotten fired because, you know, why is a conga player taking out cymbal stands? They didn't realize I was the first conga player to play with cymbals with my hands. And uh, anyway, I noticed all throughout the show, they were playing this new music that I fell in love with, straight ahead and kind of bebop stuff. I was like, oh, yeah, I tore that <laughs> up, man. I was in heaven. I was in heaven. And, and I remember Jocko played this big soul, went out like Jimi Hendrix, played the Star Spangled Banner. Audience went crazy. Joe Zawinul comes over to me. He goes, hey, boy, go out there and, and play some of that hand stuff. I went out there, man. <laughs> I was so shy back then, I never looked at the audience. I would just close my eyes and play and go off. Standing ovation. I never knew. For, I was in the band for like a month, over a month. And the manager told me, he gave me a raise at the point after we'd been out to Japan and all around the world. I said, what's this extra money for? You've been holding the band together every night. You're the only one that gets a standing ovation. I said, what? He goes, open your eyes, mate. He was English cat. Tough, tough, <laughs> tough. And he was a little short dude, but he was like a pit bull. He was like my babysitter, you know, so I, I never did coke and all that stuff. He always kept me away from the, the parties with the band and all that stuff and taught me about the world and wine and just educated me. And he, he was from uh, Led Zeppelin. Man, he was their road manager. Tough, tough guy, man. He taught me a lot about life. And, and, um, so that's where Miami Dade sort of was a blessing in an odd kind of a way. Wow. You know, because that never would have happened if I had stayed in college. You know. All out of you just stepping out on faith and. Well, actually, I, it's just me. I just the way that I am. I mean, I love music dearly, but that beat, there's not much for a, a conga player like me to do. And that genre, because the beat never changes. It drove yeah. me insane. I thought, I'd rather go do anything, dig a ditch, anything than this, man. Yeah, you yeah. Know, that was the torture for me. Yeah. Jazz gives you freedom of self, self-expression. Play whatever you feel in the moment, just like what Bernard was doing, you know? Yeah, yeah. When I would come over with these weird melodies, there was nobody telling Bernard what to do. He just played what he felt in his heart. And yeah. that's what jazz is. Or improvisation. Right, ex yeah. exactly. You know. Now, speaking of that, because the very first album that you appeared on by Weather Report was Night Passage. Night Passage, yeah. And that's one of my favorite jazz albums of Joe's all time. Joe's Arnold, that's his favorite too. Yeah. So, like, what's funny about it, because you really don't notice that it's a live album until you listen deeply and you hear the audience. But... When you brung, when you guys brung that material for what was like, from what I read, it was like 250 people that you guys played that material for in Los Angeles. And then I think Madagascar was recorded in uh, Japan. Japan, live. So was this material already sitting around or was it like, okay, listen, we're going to go in front of this audience and whatever comes out of it. That's how Joe was. Because wow. when, when they brought me in for the so-called audition, we were on a tour called 8.30, but he was already playing the music from Night Passage. Wow. So when we got off the road, we went right back to L.A. and went right in the studio, and we shared a studio complex with Prince and Earth, Wind & Fire. Wow. So I used to see, I used to see Maurice White and, and his brother almost every other day. We would go in and we, we shared the soundstage. They had one studio that had... Uh, a seating for a live audience. Then there was another recording studio, just private, just for the musicians. Right. And and um, that was our home base. So after, you know how it is when you come off the road, you don't need to rehearse. Just go right in the studio because everybody's everybody's tuned up from playing the music every night on the road for like two months, you know, something. And he, Joe took advantage of, of that. So we had our rehearsal live on the concerts for 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 that album. 
And that's Joe's favorite album. That's my favorite one, too. Wow. Now, I want the people that's listening at home to know this. We're talking about Prince, Earth, Wind, and Fire, and what the report in one. Under the same roof, with the same <laughs> management. Wow. So did you ever have a connection with, with... I never met Prince, never saw him, but I used to see Maurice White, and his, and, and uh, I think his brother was the bass player. I'm not sure. Burning, yeah, I would see him, see those two, especially those two, we would see each other all the time. Wow, okay. Now, what's interesting also about that album, I believe the only cover that you guys do is Rockin' in, in uh, Rhythm. and by Duke Ellington. And the way that you guys took that joint and flipped it, because of course, you know, Duke, Duke Ellington always had that swing. Always. And always. you guys took that song and... Uh, pretty much modernized it into what everybody knows as jazz fusion. Right. And I always wondered how did you guys manage to take something like that and flip it into something? We just followed Joe, man. Because we, we, the first time I heard it was uh, at, at, I think it was Harvard uh, University. Hmm. And I didn't know any of their music, but I knew how to swing. That's all that mattered. I listen for the groove and I listen for the melody. I listen to what everybody does. And also I know one thing about drummers because I was playing drums also. For a conga player, it's best to stay out of the way of the drummer. That's mm -hmm. respect. You got to respect the bus driver. So I knew how to skate around the drummer. And for me, being a fighter coming up with karate and boxing, you know, I knew how to skate just like a good, a good fighter. You know, you bob and weave, you dodge punches until you see an opening and you take it. That's how I approached playing with Weather Report because you have Peter Erskine, gifted drummer. You got Jocko, monster bass player, playing a million notes a minute. Joe Zollo, the same. He's playing a million notes. Wayne, I watched him, man. He was like a monk on the saxophone. This cat would lay back in the cut and wait. He played three notes and August would go crazy. <laughs> just everybody else would be real busy. Wayne would just bust out three notes and the people would just scream and lose their mind. And I thought, that's how I want to be. And so I, I learned a lot from that environment because it, it, you, had, you had to know how to fend for yourself because the music was so fast, you didn't have time to think. Yeah. It all comes down to that thing that people say creating space within the music right right because people will come other conga players used to watch me play bernard and they would look at me on stage and they would meet me and say hey man how come you stop playing every now and then you just stop playing you don't do anything i said i have to leave space for the music to breathe you know just like a horn player a horn player doesn't play all throughout the whole song they got to take the horn down and take a breath and they looked at me confused. So that's one of the reasons why I started writing my book. Conga players kept saying, man, why don't you write a book? We want to understand what you're doing because I'm the only bebop player still in the world, the only one. Most other conga players still rely on Afro-Cuban style and that has nothing to do with swing or bebop. You know, so I'm, I'm doing my part in giving back of my technique from this autobiography I'm writing, but it's also about my technique in playing, you know, and watching people like Wayne Shorter, you know, just thrill an audience with three or four notes. I mean, that that speaks volumes. I think it was Miles Davis that said that yeah. space is also musical. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Less is more. Yeah. I heard Prince once say that the one, or I'm paraphrasing, but he would say the the one of the funkiest things about the music is the space. It's it's true, it, it's true, man. You know, so uh, that was a great a great platform for me to learn from. And uh, Joe Zollo and I, we we got really close. He was like a second dad when he, he found out how old I was, and he also love the fact that I never did cocaine so for some reason that meant a lot to him and because when they first saw me play they thought I was on that because I was moving so fast and Jocko told him no man that kid is pure 
he's never done that in his life. And, and so Joe took me under his wing. He started teaching me about different instruments. I, I have a big collection of weird instruments around the house. You know, and, and uh, he got me into collecting bizarre instruments. He caught me meditating in the bathroom once in Japan, but with my flute. I had a can of flute, and I play Indian style like an Indian. And um, he heard it, and he said, man, that's beautiful. You're going to do that on stage tonight. I said, what? He goes, yeah, you're going to do that on stage tonight. And he was the one that, that pushed me out to, to, to not be afraid of, of playing different instruments in front of people. And we would travel around the world. He would come to my room 7.30. Come on, man, let's go get some breakfast. After breakfast, he'd get a cab. I said, where are we going? We're going to the oldest music store in town. I said, for what? That's where you find the coolest instruments. And he said, you have a knack for playing bizarre instruments. Let's go see what we can find. We, w we found some cool stuff, man. We were in the music store. We found some weird thing, gave it to me. I played it and said, you're playing that tonight. <laughs> and this is how he was with me. Yeah. And so I play over like 18 different bizarre instruments now, all because of that wow. man. You know, and traveling around the world, man, you'd be surprised. The, the benefits of traveling as a musician for me was like a gift from God, man. I mean, you learn so much about other people's culture, their religion, food, especially music. And man, everybody needs music around the whole world. Everybody has their own sound. They have their own style of drumming. Drums are so important to everybody. Music is important to everybody on this entire planet. No matter where you are in the world, everybody needs music. You know what, Bobby? It's actually to cure. I was reading something in the Word one day, and, and I found that that when, when uh, King Saul always had a problem with David, David for him. and these evil spirits that were tormented him, he would get the most awesome peace, and it was like he would call for David just to play on his heart, just play, just play, and it, it was it was a it was a healing for him, you know. And I think for the most part, that's what I began to experience earlier. And when my mother used to tell me about the sweating of the hands, it wasn't just for laying hands or, or you know, because that gift is in me to touch people that's and right. they get better, mm -hmm. you know. People have had cancer. I wonder about myself. I said, I got these problems, but still, yeah. You, know, so <laughs> you heal yourself. Me. You see what I'm saying? Right. But it's almost like I told Yeshua, says, hey, listen, you, you save others, save yourself. You know what I'm saying? It's not for us to save ourselves. You know, you know, he already has somebody in position to help us. So you don't worry about yourself. You know, you just continue to do for others. Like you say, you keep reaching out to the world and blessing others through your gift. That's and right. you'll have somebody else bless you. This is how it goes. That's you know? it. Yeah, what goes around comes around. Very true, man. Very, very true. So, what I do want to ask as well is, you know, because I hear you talk about Joe, you talk about Wayne. What was it like to be around and witness the gift of Jocko? And what was you guys' connection like? We, we were, uh, we had a different relationship from every else in the band because Jocko also was a clairvoyant mm. not many people knew that because he's very private about it but he found out that I was and we're also both Sagittarians he's like December 1st I'm the 5th mm. and when he found that out he confided in me uh, in, in Tokyo after he saved my life I had some complications after the show that were real bad and, but he came into my room after he saw these doctors rushing in and he saved my life. I don't, I don't want to go into details, but the, mm. the following night, he took me up to the restaurant in Kale Plaza, and, and he said, uh, Bobby, I got something to, to tell you. And I said, well, first, I want to thank you for saving my life, and I'm a Southern gentleman. How can I repay you? And he said, well, that's what I want to talk to you about. And that's when he told me, look, I'm going to die uh, when I turn 35 and I want you to look out for my babies. I want you to be their godfather. And we shook hands, and he, I remember he was, before he drank his sake, he was crying when he told me that. He had already seen his death and told me about it. And sure enough, 
when he turned 34, he got murdered right there in Fort Lauderdale after he went to see his friend Carlos Santana. But by that time, from bipolar depression, he was living on the street and looked really bad, like a bum. The bouncers, when he went to this bar to, to get a couple drinks, the bouncers thought he was a hobo. They took him outside and beat him into a coma. Mm. And, and uh, that's how he really died. You, you know. And but man, that, that messed me up. And it came to pass and I gave my word. I was living part time back in eighty three. Uh, my first wife I met in south of France. I was living in Marseille, south of France. And then I remembered that man I have to keep my word to Jocko. And I would come back and forth to spend time with uh, Ingrid and the boys because I had given Jocko my word. And so they came up playing music with me. Mm. In fact, their first, Julius and Felix Pastorius, their first gig, they were 11 years old. It was a, a jazz festival here in Miami. And when I went on stage with these two little kids, the audience started laughing until we played that first note. Nobody was laughing after that. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, so yeah. I, I did my job yeah. for yeah. the man that saved my life because I wouldn't be here. Yeah. You know, so. so that's, but Jocko and I, we had a lot of fun. He was very athletic. He loved basketball and uh, running. We would, we would run like three miles a day. We would go to the, the YMCA and shoot hoops. And the funniest story is that we went to Salt Lake City, Utah, mm -hmm. and, and uh, we were riding on the bus from somewhere to Salt Lake and the Olympics uh, that was on the TV on the, on the bus, right? So we're all watching Olympics. And Greg Luganis, the great diver from Fort Lauderdale, was diving. And I was sitting there and said, man, that's what I do. And Jocko goes, brothers can't dive. I said, I can't. And he said, when we get to Salt Lake City, I'm coming to your room tomorrow. We're going straight to the Y. I want to see you get on the high platform. I said, no problem. And the whole band was laughing. They thought it was funny, you know. And sure enough, man, the next morning we're in Salt Lake City. He comes to my room, knock on the door. We go to the Y. We walk in. And uh, he said, okay, show me. He's standing here like this. So I walk in, you know, go all the way up to the platform, the highest one, poise myself. I did a one and a half pike. Perfect. Perfect landing. Out of nowhere, it was like a voice from God. Will the nigger in the hippie get out of the pool now? And Jocko, Jocko fell on the he fell on the cement and was laughing his butt off, man. He was hysterical. He couldn't even get up. I say, man, we gotta go. Get up, get up. He couldn't stop laughing. It was it was hilarious, man. And it, after all these years, I told this story on the the uh, BBC film crew that came and filmed me right here. I told the story. They cut it out. They didn't put it in the movie because of what I said about Utah. I'm sure with a nigger and a hippie. They didn't. They didn't care for that. But hey, I'm just telling the true story. That's how it happened. But it was. That was one of those the funniest things that ever happened to us. Yeah. <laughs> and and then and now all these decades later. Uh, I, I, I realized why they didn't kick us out before. They wanted to see if a brother could dive too. Otherwise, they would have kicked us out as soon as we walked in. <laughs> they saw me going up that platform. I bet they were in there going, oh, he's going to kill himself. Let's just wait. You know? <laughs> that story, man, that's my, one of my favorite moments of life on the road mm. with Jocko Pastorius. It was hilarious. Now, you know, it's funny because when I think of all these innovative musicians, you know, you think of Jimmy, you think of Santana, um, one that's very underrated to me, like, you know, people look at musicians and they talk about the rigs. Larry Dunn from Earth, Wind & Fire had the most unique keyboard setup ever. You played with Jocko of course what was this rig that he was it was it was real simple he had he had a, 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 a nice amp I forget the company but it was his effects that he had right. on the floor that people couldn't see 
and he he had a a, a loop machine. He had a distortion. He do his Jimi Hendrix thing, too, you know. Mm -hmm. And he come out and he set up a loop, a real funky loop, because he was a drummer too. He was, in fact, he Jocko opened the 8:30 show on drums, not Peter Erskine, and he was funky man. It was some upside down funky stuff. He played just like a brother, and and uh, Joe. And Jocko opened the show, and then he would get off the drums, go to the edge of the platform, which was higher, of course. He'd do a, a, he'd do a backflip off the, the drum riser, land on his bass with his, with his foot, and hit the strings, and would go, it would just vibrate, come through the amp. And then he'd, he'd stand there and just look at it. The audience would freak out. He, they would freak freak out man you know no it wasn't a back flip he'd do a front flip and he'd time it so he could tap the strings with his right foot and then he then he'd pick it up and the audience was already blown away because they number one nobody was crazy enough to do a front flip off the drum riser and play the <laughs> guitar the bass guitar with their foot wow yeah that's how he, the show opened this is how incredible he was so he had a simple rig. The one that had the most incredible rig was Joe Zawinul. He was surrounded by keyboards, looked like he was in a spaceship, you know, an alien spacecraft with all these different keyboards and everything. You know, he used to let me go back there and play with it, you know, when I got older, you know, because I ended up becoming lead singer and songwriter for, for, that, for that band as I got older. So I stayed with him over uh, 30 years off and on. Mm. You know. Wow. Yes, a long time. Long, I ended up being bodyguard, tour manager, everything. We were seriously tight. Wow. Wow. So, I think, what I, I'm trying to figure out what can I ask now, because it's like, you've you done covered, yeah, you done covered all the ground. Yeah, like uh, he he got into Wayne. I I had a question here about talking about Wayne Shorter. You, Joe. So it's like yeah, Wayne was cool too. But he is also another mystic. We we he was he was very strange. He was like me. We we didn't like to sleep, so we would hang at like three three thirty in the morning. Everybody would crash. Wayne and I would step and talk about mysticism because his grandmother was clairvoyant, mm. and so we would talk about that subject nothing to do about music he liked me he liked old music i mean old movies mm. and i like old movies and mysticism we talked about that kind of stuff yeah so and uh you know P peter you know i learned a lot from watching him watching him play you know he wasn't too happy that i joined the band because i took too much of the spotlight getting standing ovations all the time because uh, a lot of drummers are offended when a conga player uses cymbals because they feel like we're stepping into that territory, but now because of me, anytime you see a conga player, they got cymbals, even if they don't know how to use them. <laughs> yeah. They got that from Bobby T. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But but man, that's you got my whole life story. Yeah, yeah. My whole life story down. Now, I I do want to get your opinion on a couple of things because I know Weather Report has been somewhat heavily sampled in the hip-hop community oh, yeah. by you know Way people like like tribe tribe called quest um and many other mcs rappers as well how does that make you feel to know that you that this impact has carried I'm on I'm, it makes me yeah. proud it makes me proud because the influence the the uh, genius like joe as a writer and producer would have on these young cats from new york would hear this but like, see, New York City is a whole different world from every other city on this planet because mm. they listen to everything. The young people there in that environment, man, coming up in Brooklyn and everything, they're, they're, they're intelligent. You know, they listen to everything. If they see that they can learn from something, they absorb it and they use it. You know, look what happened to James Brown. He was the most sample musician in the history of music. Yeah. Yeah. Still to this day. Oh yeah, yeah. Definitely. You know, so I'm I'm honored about that. You know, I mean, people still copy Joe's all on Weather Report. People copy me now. I get other comic players calling it Bobby Man. Everybody's using symbols. I remember back in the day at the airliner when you started doing that. 
I was only 19. And I did that because I saw Eric Gravatt was a former drummer from Web Report. He came to the airline and motel. His cymbals were way up in the air, man. I couldn't believe it, about six feet up. And from, from six feet up back to the snare, he never missed a beat, never missed a beat. And I remember talking to him and I said, man, how do you, what's, what's, what are all those rhythms that you're playing in between the, the cracks? He goes, it's from Africa, everything's from Africa. You, you know, polyrhythms, baby, polyrhythms. He's smoking a cigar. He was, he was a, a, not a nice, a nice man. He's very intimidating. <laughs> he seemed like I was annoying him. Even the smoke came out spooky when he blew the smoke out of his mouth. It was made you scared how it came out, man. It was <laughs> waiting for Dracula to walk out of the back or something. No, but I was so, I was so curious. I was so curious. I wanted to know because I was playing drums and I wanted to be like him. And when he left town, I got me some cymbals. I put them way up because I knew I had the speed to go all the way from here back down to where my bongos were. And, and, and man, I did that and people bugged out. They loved it because mm. I never got cut. Wow. I never got cut, man. It, it, seemed, it seemed like there's a sound between here and there that people don't, I mean, you won't hear it unless you're a musician or unless you're a person that understands music. It's that empty space that's also music. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah it's true. It, it's true, man. But uh, working at the airline, I, I learned a lot. I remember you invited me to that. Was it the Iron Shower? It was the Airliner Motel. Airliner Motel. Right across from the airport. Yeah. It was a trio down there, I think. No, it was the Billy Marcus Quartet. Billy Marcus. That's and then I made five. Okay, I and, remember. And that's how I got my start because Monty Alexander saw me there. Elvin, uh, Elvin Jones's brother, the piano player, played with him. Uh, Thad Jones, Mel Lewis, played with him. Zoot Sims, played with him. Horace Silvers, the drummer, gave me a drum lesson. I mean, all the cats from New York would come through and see me and say, "Man, you got to get the hell out of Miami. Come to New York. You don't belong here." That's what they all would say, but. Something bigger came to me because after Monty came, uh, Jocko got me in Weather Report. That was it. I was traveling around the world for decades. People back in Washington Park and were wondering, what happened to Robert? What happened to Robert Thomas? I was traveling around the world. I was working for Weather Report, Stan Getz, Herbie Mann, and Monty Alexander. Wow. And living in the south of France. So that's why I disappeared from Washington Park. People like... Just telling, what happened to Robert Thomas? He's gone. I never wanted to come back to Miami. The one of the most painful things, which I'm going to tell you, I was on I-95 back in like about 1983. I was in a car on I-95 with a white woman. We were going to a party. She was not my girlfriend. A state trooper pulled us over, and he drove by, and Isaiah, the look. That man gave me, through that window, I could feel the hate. I could feel it. And I told I told my friend Connie, I said, Connie, get ready to pull over. She said, but I'm not speeding. I said, get ready, they're going to pull us over. Sure enough, they jumped in front of her, they pulled us over. They had her out there, man, for fifth. No, this one cop was in a uniform. The one that gave me the, the energy was a plain clothes cop. Mm. And the guy in the uniform had Connie out front talking to her for like 15 minutes. I had just come from France and I was smoking French cigars and sitting there with my shirt and tie and just watching this whole idiotic routine. I'm just sitting there smoking my cigar and watching. This young lady got finished with the cop, man. She came back shaking her skin, was white. White, pasty white. I said, what's wrong with you? She goes, oh, Bobby, thank God. Thank God you didn't move. That other police was standing next to your head with a gun. When she told me that, man, I was so stunned that somebody could hate so deep to put a gun to my head for being in the car with just a friend, not a girlfriend, in 1983, yeah. and I got a gun to my head for being in the car with a white woman, man. Stan Getz took me to Europe, south of France. The First beautiful woman I saw said, you, we hooked up, man. I came back to Miami. I packed my stuff. 
I was gone for years. I never, all the years I lived in Marseille and Paris, I never had a French police put a gun to my head mm. for being with anybody of a different race. So I'm sorry to drop that on you, but that's, no, I know. that's, that, that's one of the main reasons why I left Miami. And if my parents hadn't gotten sick, and, and uh, I, that's why I had to come back. And, and my first marriage, you know, didn't work out. We both agreed that my wife is a uh, movie star now. She's a theater actress and really did, it just didn't work out. But yeah. we're still friends, but that's the only reason I came back. Yeah. You, you know, to, to Miami. And I was also, you know, still had a thing for my girlfriend who I'm married to now, uh, Jane. I came back to see if she still had any feelings for me and it worked out. We've been together over 30 years. Mm. Wow. Uh, but but Miami, that, that experience in Miami just messed me up because as a musician, we traveled around and played to make people happy of all races. I've never had anybody put a gun to my head in a foreign country. Yeah. But here in my own country, my own hometown. I mean, that's 1983. You got to admit, that's pretty crazy just like crazy stuff is going on now yeah yeah because you know, so. I know you played in the church and right. you well known you know you're a spiritual person as well I've always heard somebody uh, artist by the name of D'Angelo would always say that he when he goes out on that stage he, you know he uses God as the source to come down on him mm -hmm to give it to the crowd that's right. and I always wondered if that's always been your thing when it came to yeah, I go know. in first because I know if the gift came from God I knew it because I was a, a illustrator you know like when I would come to Bernard's house with these melodies they was coming this was being brought to me I couldn't take credit for that yeah and whatever I do always meditate on God first before I do anything. Yeah. Especially being on stage because that's an honorable platform. That you know, some guys like would be going stage and you know they're looking at the cute girls in the front row or this or that. I'm playing music to heal people. Yeah. That's how I look at it. Other musicians do it for different reasons, but I don't care about the paycheck. Yes, I want to be paid, but it's the healing power of music. That's yeah. why people go to see live music. Yeah. They want to come away happy. Yeah. Yeah. They want to come away with something. Yeah. Definitely. Definitely. You know, so that's what it's all about for, for me, you know. And it's just that I was fortunate enough to have Mother Johnson and Mother Pearson was a minister. Mm -hmm. You know. And and so it's just how we grew up in, in the day. You you were respectful of of gifts that came your way. Yeah. That's how we both were raised. And so when you go on stage, that's an honor. That's a gift from God, man. Yeah. You give back to people. So, Definitely. So that's how I look at it. Definitely. So now these days, of course, you're a teacher now, helping out the kids. Now, what made you, what inspired you to be like, you know what, hey, now I want to reach the youth. Well, it, it, came, it came to me. Uh, just as another gift, man. I was I was off the road and and looking for work, looking for work, getting older and getting tired of traveling all the time. And and I get a phone call from this young lady telling me I saw you on YouTube, and uh, I'm uh, an administrator of, of the music program at uh, Miami Lighthouse for the Blind. I can't believe you live in Miami. And she was educated. She was from the University of Miami and knew weather reports that. I've a well report member living here in Miami. Unbelievable. Yeah. Can you bring that funny instrument that I saw you playing? Can you bring that down and audition for the kids? I brought my baby over there, man. Played for them. Blew their mind. I ended up staying there six years. I wrote my own cu curriculum. They let me teach my own curriculum. Yeah. Because nobody else could teach it. And, and also with the metaphysical instruments like the druid bell that I used to heal that little boy that was supposed to die. Mm -hmm. You know, I would use that on him. So I make breakthroughs with teaching blind kids how to play drums and I would tell them, okay, close your eyes. How come? I'm blind. I said, 
close, doesn't matter, close your eyes. Now, you see that black screen? And I would touch their forehead. See that black screen right there? Tell me the first color you see. Oh, Mr. Thomas, I see red. I see blue, I see green. I said, okay, now, touch all the, touch the snare drum. Run your hand around the rim. Put that on the screen. I would make them touch every part of the drum set and tell them to put it on that black screen. Then I said, here now, take the sticks and play. They hit every single thing. Wow. Because, see, when you meditate, it's, you, you see first black, and then you see colors. But then you can put things on that screen. That's one of the breakthroughs I made with teaching those kids. And, and uh, the other teachers got jealous and started giving me a hard time, and eventually I, I left. Yeah. But that was my way of giving back to say, yeah, you might not have sight with these eyes, but the third eye, that's something nobody can take from you. And that is connected to the pineal gland. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's a lot of people don't have that knowledge of how important the pineal gland is. That's your, that's your gateway into God, into a higher consciousness, the pineal gland. A lot of people yeah. don't know that. You know, and, and so it's, this is what I'm thankful for because I learned from those blind kids too not to take sight for granted, not to take anything for granted. Mm -hmm. They're much braver than I am. I used to close my eyes when I got to work and try to negotiate the hallways and going up and down the stairs like I saw them doing. It's not easy. It's not easy, man. I wanted to know, man, what did this feel like every day to just get up and not be able to see nothing? And I stopped taking life for granted. It made me a better person working around that population. That's what, that's what they gave me. Wow. Well, Mr. Thomas, thank you. Thank you for being... The first guest. Now you call you, you. You can call me Uncle Bob. <laughs> <laughs> That's what you call thank me. You, man. Thank you. I appreciate That's it. That's what you call me. <laughs> thank Deeper you. That, yeah. Mr. Bobby, my ass. Yeah. <laughs> <Uncle> Bobby. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs>